Here's the main thing I want you to know this morning is that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, all the things we've sung about and all I'm going to talk about doesn't matter at all. So I want you to, to consider this your invitation to give your life and your heart to Jesus Christ. And if you're a b- professing believer and you're not living for the Lord, my invitation to you is repent and start living for the Lord. We were talking this morning about uh, just kind of in, in band rehearsal and before Sunday school, just talking about how here's the kind of house you want to be. If I'm going to give advice to our, our, our parents, be the kind of, ho- uh, kind of home where this question is never asked. Are we going to church this morning? Yeah, that, there you go. That's <laughs> Novak. But don't you, that, that question doesn't need to be asked in your house. You know why? Because if Sunday morning we're going to church. Okay? So that's, that's how we teach our children that this isn't optional. That's how we teach our children that this matters. If church is something that may or may not matter to you, do you think it's going to wind up mattering to them? Probably not. So we want, we want to teach our children to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, today's sermon is a little bit unusual. For the past four weeks, I've been doing a sermon series, a series of messages uh, on the church. And I decided after we finished 2 Corinthians, I was going to, you know, uh, take a little pause and answer some questions and kind of think through some things that I've been wanting to teach our congregation. And then we're going to move on to Titus. And so I did four sermons, and I was going to start Titus this week, and then some other questions came up. Uh, people were kind of asking questions about uh, things about our church and a lot of the stuff we cover in the new member class, but we only started that new member class uh, just a few years ago. So most people haven't heard what we talk about in the new member class, but I want to answer a few questions. So I'm going to preach on a theme this morning. Like I said, it'll be a little bit unusual. Uh, I have got several texts that we're going to look at, but the title of the sermon, which will be the, I may have to finish it next week, is uh, what is a Baptist anyway? What, what makes us unique? And so I want to teach on that this morning, and I hope that it'll be interesting to you, and I hope it'll edify you as you think a little bit about why we do some of the things that we do, why we don't do uh, some of the things that we do. A question comes up, how do our children join the church? And so we have concerned mothers saying, how, how, I have a baby, how can I make sure that baby's a member of the church? And one thing that we really do different as Baptists than a lot of the other churches is when you're born, you don't automatically become a member of the church. You become a member of the church voluntarily. Our children are going to come to be members of the church the same way the adults do. They're going to decide on their own when they're a certain age that they want to give their life to Jesus Christ and they want to follow Him in baptism and join the church. Why are we this way? Let me take a few moments this morning to explain who are the Baptists and where do they all come from. So in this series so far, we first began looking at what the true church is. What is a true church? And we determined that a true church is one that preaches a true gospel. So there are other true churches besides the Baptist church. Okay, but, but as long as we hold fast to the true gospel of Jesus Christ, we will be a true church. Then secondly, we looked at why the local church, as I was just mentioning a second ago, why being a part of a local church and being invested in it and being part of it is so essential to the life of a believer that we might grow in discipleship. Next, we looked at the purpose of the church. If you remember, the purpose of the church is to make disciples. 
It's to demonstrate to the world how amazing God is, and it is to minister to those inside the church who have needs and those who are outside the church who have needs. And then last week we looked at baptism and the Lord's Supper and how there are different things going on there when someone is baptized and whenever the Lord's Supper is celebrated. And the point of that sermon, uh, if you missed it, because I was a little rushed for time and I was editing it on the fly to try to finish uh, what I had there. But basically what I wanted you to walk away with last week was that when you're baptized, when you enter the waters up here, what you're doing is you're proclaiming that you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the church is doing something as well. The church is saying, we believe your profession of faith is valid. And we're marking you as a member of our church, and we're marking you off from the rest of the world. And then in the Lord's Supper, when you take the Lord's Supper, you don't just do that by yourself. We do this all together. We take the Lord's Supper as a church. And whenever we take the Lord's Supper, we as a church are proclaiming Christ's death. When we take the bread and the juice, we are proclaiming the meaning of his death. And we're remembering what Christ has done, and we will do that. He's told us to do it until he comes again. And when, the, when we take the Lord's Supper together, what we're saying as a church is, if we're giving you the elements, if we're giving you the bread and the juice, what we're saying is we think your profession of faith is valid. It's a way for you to have assurance of your salvation. In other words, through baptism and the Lord's Supper, it gives us all a chance to say what the Lord has done and is doing in our lives. The Lord's Supper and baptism allow us to commit and recommit ourselves to Christ in a public and meaningful way. They give us assurance that other people are recognizing what God is doing in our lives. And we wouldn't baptize someone if we didn't think they were a believer. And we wouldn't give the Lord's Supper to someone who's an unbeliever. And if one of our members begins to give evidence that they're not truly a believer, then we go through the steps that we see there in Matthew chapter 18. If that person is, is confronted with their sin, and remember, being a sinner doesn't mean you get kicked out of the church, right? Because we'd all get kicked out of the church. But the way that we're disciplined in the church is through teaching and relationships and fellowships. But if we're not repentant, then we begin to give evidence that we're not really a Christian because Christians repent of their sins. That's what Christians do. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says that if someone doesn't repent of their sins, then they're to be put out of the fellowship that they might repent and come back. And the way that that is shown is the person is not permitted to take the Lord's Supper. And that's a way to warn someone, and that's really a very loving thing to do. It doesn't seem loving, does it, when we just think about it? But if someone, if we were truly concerned that they were not saved and they thought they were, that's a pretty unloving thing to do, isn't it? It would be very unloving if someone was about to get hit by a bus and you said, well, I don't want to offend them by knocking them out of the way. You know, but that's what we are called to do as a church. That's why these Lord's Supper baptisms are so important. So that's kind of where we've been in the last few weeks. And today I want to wrap it up by preaching on the theme, what is a Baptist? So the question first we can say is, how did the Baptists get here? When did these people called Baptists begin to exist? So let me just do a survey here. Raise your hand if, if you were brought up in the Baptist church. Okay, Can I put your hands down. Raise your hands if you were not brought up in a Baptist church. Okay, that's quite a few of us. So you might be wondering, where did Baptists come from? 
And probably the people that were raised Baptists have no idea either, so we're probably all in the same boat. So where, where did Baptists come from? That's a good question. When did Baptists begin? Well, how old is the dirt? <laughs> they, I mean, we don't really know, do we? It's hard to pin down a specific date and time of when Baptists began. It's like saying, when did Republicans and Democrats start existing? Some might trace their political party back to Greece or to Rome, or to Abraham Lincoln, or to Thomas Jefferson. But where did the ideas come from? Surely the ideas of democracy were floating around before 1776. And it's similar when we're thinking about Baptists. We have examples of baptismal pools where people were being immersed in water from the second century. We have evidence in the New Testament that the things we believe in practice have existed since the New Testament was written. But we can also point to some things in more recent history that we might say, well, these were the actual beginnings of the denomination that we're part of now. So the idea is we would hope that what we believe in practice, that we could open up the Bible and find it. That's our goal. But where did we come from as a denomination? We would have to say we can give answers there in both ways. Uh, where did the Baptists come from? There have been some that have argued for a long time. They called them landmarkists. They would say, uh, where did the Baptists come from? Just look in the book of Acts. It was First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. All right? But that's really, not, uh, that's really not doing history very well. Uh, and we, we would understand that. But we would want to say we want to derive everything we do at the Baptist Church from Scripture as best as we understand it. And we do that humbly, knowing that we might be wrong about some things, but we're trying our very dead-level best to interpret the Scripture uh, as, as we, uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the most accurate way that we possibly can. So the first thing we can say about Baptists is that we are part of what is called the Protestant Reformation. Now, you've heard of the Protestant Reformation. That's when Martin Luther began uh, to, to try to reform the Roman Catholic Church and in 1517, we know he went and nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And Luther came to believe, the reason he did that, the reason he was protesting and seeking to reform the church, he wasn't trying to make his own church, he was trying to reform the Catholic church, is because he began to believe that over time the church had lost the true gospel and had begun to preach a gospel of good works rather than a gospel of grace. So in other words... The Roman Catholic Church was teaching the, what Luther protested is he said the church was teaching that grace wasn't free, that you had to do righteous works like uh, baptism or confession or penance or the other sacraments. And then there was something going on at the time that he was upset about called the selling of indulgences where to pay for St. Peter's Basilica being constructed, there was a man named John Tetzel who was going all around Europe and he was selling indulgences. So what he was saying is if you'll give money to the building project that we've got going on down in, in Rome to build that amazing structure that is there today that some of you have probably actually visited uh, and, and just see how magnificent it is. They, they were raising money by saying if you'll give money to the church, then the Pope will make sure that your relatives will be uh, sprung from purgatory and will make it to heaven sooner than they would be otherwise. So you could basically buy uh, their, their trip out of purgatory, which was sort of a, in, in, that, their, in that system of belief, there's a 
kind of an intermediary place between heaven and hell where you go until your sins are cleansed or forgiven. And, and I don't know too much about that, but I understand that basically. So what did Luther do? Well, Luther was reading his Bible. What started this in his mind was, if you'll look at Romans chapter 3, we can put it up on the screen here. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Do you have that one, Debbie? Romans chapter 3, verse 21. This is kind of, if you're wondering where Baptists get started, it was kind of this idea, okay, that kind of sprang out of part of the, of the uh, Reformation. Look at Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. <clears throat> Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. It's not something that you buy. It's not something that you work for. We're justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is a just judge. Isn't that true? Can God ever do anything wrong? Can He ever be a bad judge? No. He would be a bad judge if He just overlooked the sin. I've talked about that before. If we went down to the courthouse and someone has committed a crime and Judge Bristow says, oh, don't worry about it. I'm just going to look over it. You know, you're a good dude. You made a mistake. Just forget it. <clears throat> you can go home. Well, we would say, well, wait a minute. We didn't elect you to be that kind of judge. We elected you to be a just judge. Okay? And God has got to be a just judge. What does that mean? It means all your sins must be uh, punished. The sins you've committed, each one must be punished. Well, if that's, if that's how God has to be a just judge, then all the sins have to be punished. But on the other hand, God also loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to forgive your sins. He wants you to live with Him for eternity. So here's what He did. He put forth Jesus, and Jesus was punished for all of your sins. Jesus took the punishment for all of your sins, and so God was just because He was punishing the sins which had to be punished. But he also justifies you because it says here, now in verse 21, there's a righteousness of God that's manifest apart from the law. So instead of you doing good works, how can you become righteous? You become righteous when God takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it into your account. And so that way at the end of time, when God looks at you and says, why should you come into heaven? You would say, because I'm perfectly righteous. Now understand the righteousness isn't mine, but the righteousness is of Christ that comes to me through faith. It's a free gift of God. You don't have to come to church to go to heaven. You don't have to come to church to, to, to receive this. You don't have to pay a tithe. You don't have to do good works. Salvation is a free gift of God. It's a righteousness of God that is given to you, and it comes apart from works. So that's what Luther read, and that, really, that passage in, in Romans chapter 1 really kicked off the Reformation. 
And you can spend a lot of time studying the Reformation. Why do we have Catholics? Why do we have Protestants? Why do we have all these different denominations? And Luther was just arguing salvation. He was saying to the Pope and to the other folks in the church, salvation's a free gift. Repentance should be done freely. It's not a program. It's not a church program or a, a system. And these verses, they tell us that salvation and righteousness are a result of what Christ has done, not what we do. So when you believe, when you confess that, that Jesus is Lord, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the very thing you're believing is that you can do nothing to save yourself and that you need Jesus to save you and justify you based on his righteousness. It's an admission. There's nothing I can do. I'm throwing myself on the mercy of Christ. Well, what happened? Well, the church did not listen to Luther. In fact, they excommunicated him from the, from the church. And then you have to understand at the time... Uh, Church was a lot different. The way that they did church was, and the way they organized things was much different than the way we've organized it. And so your church and the government, the civil government, were, were like this. They were together. So you were born, and they baptized you. And that made you a member, a citizen of the city, the city-state, the kingdom, the fiefdom, whatever it was, whatever that territory was called. You were a citizen of that territory, and you were also a member of the church. That's the way it worked. So whenever uh, Luther broke away, other city-states and territories and kingdoms in, in the German area began to break away as well. And so there was a split between these who were protesting, the Protestants, the, the, the Reformers, and the Roman Catholic Church. And so these kingdoms began to break away. And so there was this new movement that was going on that we have come to call the Reformation. And so there were these folks called Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. And you've heard those names, I hope, as you've studied church history, if you have. And uh, there was a group in, in Switzerland that, was, that were disciples of this man named Zwingli. And just so you know for sure... We don't, really, we don't really descend from Luther or Calvin or Zwingli. But we call them the Reformers. But then there was this other group of people that began to emerge in history. And they were called the Radical Reformers. They said that Reformation that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli are undertaking is not going far enough. And so there was one group called the Anabaptists. This was in Zurich, Switzerland. And these guys were studying their Bibles, and you know what conclusion they came to? They came to the conclusion that we should not baptize our infants. They came to the conclusion that we should let these children grow up and decide whether they want to follow Christ or not on their own. They began to look in the Bible and see that there's not a time where infants are baptized. That everyone who gets baptized in the New Testament does this voluntarily and freely. And so this was what these guys were believing. So they go to the, where would you go to argue this? The city council. So they go to the Zurich city council and they say, we don't think we should baptize the babies anymore. We think we should wait until they make, are old enough to make a decision and believers should be the ones that are baptized. You should not be baptized until you believe. And the city council listened to them and they said, we disagree with you. You guys are heretics, 
and you need to recant from this heresy right now, and you need to bring your babies in here right now because these people had not baptized their infants. They said, bring those babies in here right now, and we're going to baptize them. Well, instead of doing that, a group of folks led by, uh, I can give you their names here, Conrad Grable, Felix Mance, and George Blairock, and about 12 other people all went to Felix Mance's mother's house, and they stood in the living room. They didn't baptize by immersion, but they poured water. They baptized each other. They all baptized each other as believers. And so they began to be called the Anabaptists. The Anna means re, the re-baptized. Well, this was a crime. And so if you were baptized again, if you were re-baptized, you were executed by drowning. They said, if these guys really want to be baptized so badly, we're going to baptize them for good. And so they would take them out, they would put a stick behind their legs, and, uh, and these are the reformers that were doing this. Okay, this wasn't the Catholic church that was executing these people. It was the people who had reformed the church. This was Zwingli's people. They would tie your hands here, put a stick behind your knees. They would bind you up, and they would throw you over backward in a boat, and you would drown to death. They said, you really want to be baptized? There you go. How many in this room you think would be willing to die for their belief in baptism? It's amazing, isn't it, that that's how committed they were. As Felix Mance was being led to the boat where they were going to take him out, and he got in the boat, and they said the boat kind of traveled along the river there where they were going to uh, drown him. They said his mother just walked alongside the shore and hollered at him, Be brave, Felix. Stand for Christ, Felix. Don't recant, Felix. And she was urging him on as he died for what he believed in. Unfortunately, the Anabaptist movement uh, became more about politics than doctrine. And so Anabaptists, uh, we, we have the early Anabaptists, which are, we could look a little bit and say, well, here are some of these Baptist ideas. But then the Anabaptists became more associated with anarchy over time. And they were called Anabaptists, but there was nothing Christian or doctrinal or anything about them. They were just causing chaos. And so the ideas there kind of died out. The ideas of Grable and Blayrock and Mance kind of died out there. But then about 100 years later, in the 1600s, you have these people called English separatists. And they were refusing to conform to the Anglican church in England, and they began to call themselves Baptists. And so they were baptizing by immersion. They would be very, very similar to us if we were to go back to their meetings and see how they were operating. There arose two different types of these Baptists, as they were calling themselves, and these really did develop at the same time. There were general Baptists and particular Baptists. And so you had both of these streams developing there in England. Uh, these Baptists, the general Baptists, believed that the atonement was general, that atonement was unlimited, meaning that Jesus died for, for every single person ever that ever lived on the history of the earth, and that God elected to save all of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And then there were particular Baptists who believed that the atonement was definite, that Jesus didn't just elect a class of people, but that he chose to save individuals, and that no one will come to Christ unless they were elected or predestined to come to Christ. So as Baptists were developing in England, you had both of these streams. One what we would call more, uh, just to use terms we use today, more Arminian and one would be more Calvinistic as these guys were developing in their thought and, and developing what, it, what they were calling themselves as Baptists. There have always been those two streams in Baptist life. 
where we kind of wondered about that issue of the atonement. In America, as the, as the Baptists spread over to the colonies, the majority of the American Baptists were particular Baptists, meaning they were holding to that limited atonement view. They were more Calvinistic. But there have always been less Calvinistic churches in our, uh, in our, our family of Baptists. Even from the founding of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845, there was a very strong uh, Calvinistic foundation, but there were other churches that were less Calvinistic. So you had, for example, you had the Richmond uh, stream of Baptists, and they were very high church, and they were Calvinistic, and they were some of the ones that founded the Southern Baptist Convention back in 1845. We'll probably talk about that next week. And then you had what were called the Sandy Creek Baptists. And so in the Richmond church, they would bring their slaves to the church and they would buy pew space for them. You had to, back then, you had to pay for your pew. You know, I wonder if we'd have more t- better attendance if we sold tickets. But that, that's basically what they did. You had, to, you had to rent pew space from the church. Can you imagine? And so they would rent their space down in here and then they would rent their slave space in the balcony. It's interesting, the Sandy Creek tradition was much looser. And from things I've read and heard is that at that church, everybody just showed up to church and all the slaves and the masters all sat together. They said, whenever we walk in here, we're all equal. So you've got these different, you know, history's kind of messy, isn't it? Everything is, you know, when you go back, it's not, you can't really generalize or stereotype too much because it's strange the way things were done. But you've got those two streams in Baptist life. So sometimes people will say to me, are you a Calvinist church? Are you a Reformed church? And you always want to ask, well, what do you mean by Calvinist? What do you mean by Reformed? Because when I look at the Bible, um, I see places where the atonement is general, and I see places where the atonement's particular, and I just say, there's things about the Bible I don't understand. God is complex, and God is dynamic, and He can fulfill all of His will without doing any harm to your will. In short, what Baptists have always believed is that God is in control. But you will be held accountable for your sins. No matter what stream of Baptist you're talking about, this is what we've always believed. God can work through the Holy Spirit in such a way as our church statement of faith, which is the 1833 New Hampshire Statement of Faith says, our church teaches this, that God can work His way through the Holy Spirit in such a way that He can work His will through the Holy Spirit in such a way that he can secure your voluntary obedience to the gospel. I like that because that doesn't make any sense. Uh, It doesn't logically make any sense, does it? But God can work through the Holy Spirit in such a way that he can secure your voluntary obedience. God's will is preserved there, and your will is preserved there. And every single one of us can acknowledge that God is sovereign. God is in control. If God wasn't sovereign and God wasn't in control, would he be God? No. But also we understand that each of us, when we hear the gospel, is responsible for responding to it. That each one of us must hear the the proclamation of what God has done through Jesus Christ in order to save a people for himself. And we must decide whether we will obey the command, repent whether we will obey the command to believe and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So Calvinistic, non-Calvinistic, it's not really an issue. We've navigated this thing since 1845 as Southern Baptists. But what we do agree on 
is that there must be, and I'll close here and we'll pick it up next week. But what we, mu- we all agree on is that however you get there, one day we're all going to stand before God and the question is going to be, do you have the righteousness that's been credited to your account, the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Do you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is going to make you acceptable to God? Has that been put into your account because you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Or are you going to stand before God with your own righteousness? Because what the Bible teaches us is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If there's one thing we can say that where all the Baptists come from and what do we believe and what is this all about is that from the very beginning, what the Baptists have understood is we're not going to baptize our infants because we're not going to force them to believe. Nobody is going to force you when you come into this church to confess anything you don't want to confess, to believe anything you don't want to believe, to pray anything you don't want to pray. What we're understanding here, one of the big ideas of being a Baptist is that your soul is competent and able to stand before a holy God and you can make peace with Him through faith in Jesus Christ or you can reject Him and you can spend eternity in hell. If there's one thing we believe, oh, by the way, happy Mother's Day on that. Uh, But if there's one thing that we believe, that's it, isn't it? Just very clearly. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? And we think of all those who've gone before us, and you think of all those saints. We're talking about who, who had the earliest. Think of all those people that were worshiping here in the 1950s, and now there's just a handful of you that are still here. But if those people could talk to us today that were sitting over there, I guess they were still over there in 1956, right, Barbara? Still in the old sanctuary. If they could speak to us today, what would they say? They would say, if there's one thing you do in this life, make sure you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you live your life for Him. That's what they would say to us. And that's what we say today, and that's what we'll be saying on this corner in 100 years. So you wonder, what what are these Baptists about? Why why do they don't baptize their babies and these sorts of things? That's the real answer. It's because nobody should compel anybody to believe anything because then it's not really them believing it, is it? And so the question for you today, if you're here, just came here to celebrate mom, or you came, I don't know why you're here, and maybe you're saying, yeah, I've never done that. I've never given my life to Christ. I've never yielded my allegiance to Jesus Christ and acknowledge that that's the only way that I can know forgiveness. Will you do that today?